listening to Historical AF, or if you cuss like we do, Historical As Fuck. This is your ambitious librarian, Ashley. And I am your anxiety-ridden historian, Keena. We're here to deliver the funny, weird, spooky, morbid, and random historical nuggets you never knew you needed. (laughs) Oh my god, guys. Welcome to episode 11. Welcome, welcome. I love that we both picked A words. Oh my god, guys. Okay, so on the whole uh, update on our us trying to get a job, I am on my third interview, <laughs> and I have to do an hour presentation in front of the entire museum, and that's why I'm anxiety-ridden, because I'm trying to drink wine, and it's not helping, but yeah. She's going to be amazing. Yeah, there's it's a lot of work. I'm really scared. It's very intimidating. Jesus. Yes. Who knew, like, adult professional jobs was going to be this hard? <laughs> Real talk, like actual <laughs> career jobs, you they make you work for it. I know. It's like we already killed each like ourselves. I'm gonna study each other. We all <laughs> we've already killed ourselves like in graduate school and barely make it out of alive. And then you're like trying to get a job and it's like 15 interviews and jumping through hoops and it's so scary. Unless you're listening and then it's fantastic and I can't it's wait. So awesome. <laughs> oh my gosh. That has How's your week been? My week has been okay. And like, I'm trying to basically manifest into the ether that I'm going to get this job and therefore be moving to a different state. So I'm like super cleaning the house and selling all of our belongings and taking stuff to Goodwill to try to just like, I've got to move now because I got rid of my TV stand, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, and just more binge watching TV. We've been really into Lucifer lately, but yeah. I've been watching Outlander. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody keeps on telling me I need to watch it. But I'm it's like, on my to-do list. It's, it, I mean, I'm hooked. It's very yeah. sexual. I'm okay with that. <laughs> and I mean, my mom's the one that kept telling me I need to watch it. So I'm like, mom, this is basically porn. What are you doing? I watched the first episode of The Path on Hulu the other day. Uh-huh. And there's... There's a sex scene and it's not even like a graphic sex scene, but I was watching it by myself in the bedroom and my husband came down the hall to like tell me something and I felt like very scandalized to be caught watching the sex scene and I don't know why. <laughs> like I'm an adult and I'm married, so I mean it's not a big thing, but it was just very weird for him to walk in while there's like heavy panting on TV. It was weird, but it wasn't even oh, like Game yeah. of Thrones sex scene or anything. It was just a regular like vanilla scene. I don't know. Yeah, no, I have it in the living room, just, like, really loud, and Zeke nice. walks through a lot, and, like, what are you watching? I'm, like, still Outlander. <laughs> like, yes, still here, still here. Different episode, more exactly. sex. Yes. It's, uh, it's good. I mean, I like it, because it's, like, Scottish and somewhat historical, but, yeah, it's been my distraction from life. Oh, yes. This whole job hunt is going to be the death of me. Real talk. I uh, I don't know. I picked out my clothes today. Also, for our listeners, this is the third episode we've recorded this week because we've got so much going on next next week. So by the time you listen to this, we will have had our job interviews again. Oh, hopefully, I make it out alive. Because right now, I'm probably just like a fainting goat. Just <laughs> out. <laughs> I have to tell you a story about a fainting goat. Okay. And oh my god, if the person I'm about to tell the story about, if their family hears this, they're probably going to say me, but we'll talk in vagaries. So, where I used to live, two houses down, there was this 
lady who's not a nice lady. She and her husband decided to get fainting goats. And then (laughs) she would go out in the yard at like six in the morning with like the rollers in her hair and like her face mask on, just like looking real witchy and scary and run at these goats to make them faint. But they would never faint. We think they were like defective fainting goats. They never fainted. Well, that's just rude for her to be trying. Yes. And she told us this once. And my dad, bless him, in the like sweet (laughs) but brutally devastating way that he has of joking. Like, and I mean, that's where I get it from. He was like, yeah, I think if that ran at me at six o'clock in the morning, I'd faint too. (laughs) Like big mood, dad, big mood. But yes, I had to share that. I'm sorry. But yes, so we are cracked out at this point. I know, I have my family coming. They're supposed to come today, but they got a late start, so they'll probably be here tomorrow. But I'm trying to edit, like, three episodes and clean my house and prepare for this interview, and I'm probably not going to make it. So it's been nice knowing (laughs) (laughs) y'all. It was fun while it lasted. It's been real. (laughs) I'm almost out of wine. (laughs) I know, I'm almost out of alcohol. My dog just chewed a hole in his foot as I sit here, so that's cool. Yeah, so episode 11. We oh, are yeah, talking. our theme. <laughs> yeah, we have a theme. We totally, we, we're, we're prepared. It's fine. It's fine. Yes, our theme this week, in honor of Independence Day, the 4th of July, is early America. Yeah, for us Americans. Americans. For you that are not American, sorry, you're just going to have to hear about America today. USA. USA. Yeah, last episode I was singing like God Save the Queen, so I gotta gotta bring it back. I gotta be patriotic. Yes. yes. And if you yeah. want to be extra patriotic, you can go to our merch site and get our American AF shirts. They're so cute. I want one. I may have to order one. And to do that, you go to shop.spreadshirt.com slash historical AF pod. Yeah. Shameless plug. See, I like finally learned all of our URLs, (laughs) so I don't have to like take this weird, long, circuitous route to find them anymore, so I have to like keep throwing them out there. No, that works. I I enjoy making shirts, so you should enjoy buying them. Yes, we would love for you to enjoy buying our shirts. (laughs) Uh, I think we say it every episode, they're so comfortable. I wear mine all the time, and it probably looks like I'm like really trying to promote the podcast, but it's just because I... I really like and really enjoy wearing it. Real talk, it is so soft, and I really wish I could wear it to my interview, but that would be weird. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know if our future employers should listen to us say fuck every two seconds. Not. Well, I wouldn't bode well. I did tell my people in the interview that I have a podcast, but I didn't tell them what it was. Oh, I didn't say it. I wanted to because I was talking about like Akhenaten. I want to be like, and I did a podcast on him, and I, I reeled it in. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good call. Let them Although, hire you and then tell them about it. Yeah, but I'm still awkward. So it is an art museum. So they're asking me about my art history background, and you know, if I did art, how many art classes I've taken, and they're like, well, what are you working on now? And I'm like, well, right now I'm trying to work out the logistics of creating a T-Rex head that we can mount into the entryway. And then I looked at their faces and they were slightly horrified. <laughs> I was like, I, I'm, oh, I'm weird. But See, and when I read that, I was like, dude, she should totally use like foam core or expandable foam and carve it. Like, yeah, that's my plan to do it like Jurassic Park style, like how yes. they did it. Yeah. But I mean, it's kind of like I had surgery last year and 
you know, and they're like right about to put you under there talking to you to like calm you down and stuff. And they're like, so what do you like to do? And I was like, yeah, I like to paint. And they're like, oh, what's the last thing you painted? I'm like, I painted both my dog's heads on Napoleon's body. And then they put me out and I'm like, they probably had a lot of follow up <laughs> questions, but I was like out cold. <laughs> And then I was also like, this doesn't look like Grey's Anatomy, like the actual surgery room, because I've yes. never had surgery before. I'm like, oh. well, this doesn't look like TV, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I just imagine some nurse somewhere being like, I just need to know what the hell's going on with that. But well, I do. <laughs> the surgeon that did my weight loss surgery, his girlfriend was the anesthesiologist in there. And I have a tattoo on my foot that's in Spanish. I got it for a scavenger hunt. And... They were like taking bets on whether it was Spanish or Latin, and they went and asked my family. And <laughs> my the surgeon lost; he thought it was in Latin, and his girlfriend oh. said it was in Spanish. So then, when I woke up, they were like, "Okay, tell me, is it in Spanish or Latin?" So yeah, mine's in Latin. Oh yeah. Anywho, anywho, do, do you want to roll? See which of us goes first. Yes, let's do this. <laughs> again i think this dice is just like haunted every episode it goes spooky first i think so too i'm okay with it though yeah so i'm actually really excited about this i did not know about this building but i haven't been to the east coast so i probably don't know a lot of things about you know colonial america but i'm gonna talk about the wren building have you ever heard of it Mm, vaguely rings a bell but i probably have just like heard it in passing on a show or something All right, so the Sir Christopher Wren Building is the oldest college building in the United States. Okay. And it's the oldest of the restored public buildings in Colonial Williamsburg. That's cool. Right? Right? It was constructed between 1695 and 1699, before the city was even founded. This is back when the capital of the colony of Virginia was still Jamestown. So, long-ass time ago. And the tract of land that it's built on would become Williamsburg. But at that time, it was simply populated by a few people. And it had a few timber buildings that were known as the Middle Plantation. So, little extra tidbit there. Interest in founding a college in Virginia was expressed as early as 1619, when the Virginia Company of London undertook to establish a University of Henrico on the James River about 12 miles below the present city of Richmond. But an Indian uprising in 1622 and the revocation of the Virginia Company Charter in 1624 caused this initial attempt to be abandoned. In 1691, the Reverend James Blair, I immediately thought Blair Witch, (laughs) probably no relation. All right, so he was the commissary or the representative of the Church of England in Virginia He was sent to London by the General Assembly to secure a charter for a college. He was successful, and on February 8, 1693, King William III and Queen Mary II granted a charter which established a certain place of universal study. It's not very universal if it's only dudes, but I digress. A perpetual college of divinity, philosophy, languages, and other good arts and sciences consisting of one president, six masters or professors, and a hundred scholars or more or less. <laughs> it's very, more or less. Yeah, whatever. 
The new college was to consist of three schools, a classical grammar school in which boys about 12 to 15 could prepare for college, the philosophy school, which had a collegiate curriculum, and a divinity school where young men who had completed their studies in philosophy would prepare for ordination of the Church of England. During the colonial period, the Wren Building accommodated all the activities of the college. It housed students, it contained classrooms, a library, a a refectory, a faculty room, as well as living quarters for the president and the masters. In 1699, the colonial capital was moved from Jamestown to the newly formed city of Williamsburg, and the Wren Building, then the largest structure in the area, became a temporary headquarters of the government from 1700 to 1704 when the capital was completed. Known in the 18th century simply as the college, and later as the main building, William and Mary's oldest and most cherished building was renamed in 1931 for the famous British architect Sir Christopher Wren, to whom the 18th century author attributed the design. Now to all the tragic stuff. Okay. The Wren building was gutted by a fire in 1705, but was rebuilt by 1716 with funds provided by Queen Anne of England, not... Anne Boleyn, but yeah, another queen. At first, when I read that, I was like, ah, and then I realized it was 1700s, couldn't be her. Yeah, definitely not. The second form of the building, the one upon the restoration of 1928 was based, differed in many ways from the original structure, although it was erected on the original foundations using much of the original walls. In 1732, construction of the chapel or south wing was finished. Plans for the completion of the quadrangle were made around 1772, and Thomas Jefferson prepared a floor plan of the building, showing a proposed addition. The Revolutionary War intervened, however, and the construction of the fourth wing was suspended after the foundations were laid, and it was never completed. So he may have helped with the floor plan, but apparently Jefferson, a famous student of William & Mary, detested the building's design. He was a student from 1760 to 1762 and wrote in his notes on the state of Virginia that Wren was a rude, misshapen pile which should be taken for brick kiln. The genius of architecture seems to have uh, shed its maledictions over this land. In other words, he thought the building was hideous and it was an insult to architecture itself. Damn, tell us how you really feel. Right? The Wren building burned again in 1859, and the old walls were once more incorporated into the reconstruction. A third fire ravaged the building in 1862 when Union soldiers quartered in Williamsburg set it on fire, which is just rude. Yeah. (sighs) Yankees. From 1928 to 1931, the Wren was restored to its colonial appearance as part of the Rockefeller restoration of Williamsburg. Got that Rockefeller money, though. Hell yeah. The Wren Building stopped its college activities on a few notable occasions, one being the Revolutionary War and the other being the Civil War. During these wars, the building was a field hospital and barracks. In the Revolution, during the Battle of Yorktown, and for months after, the Wren was chiefly a French hospital, but also served American soldiers. In the Civil War, the Confederacy used the building for housing and hospitalization, Confederate troops under Brigadier General Jubal Early. That is an interesting name. I I love the name Jubal. Jubal. I don't think I've ever seen her before. Huh. Well, he camped there before the Battle of Williamsburg. The Confederate 
Well, then the building was followed by the Union, which overtook the campus and city in 1862. So fast forward to prepare the Wren for its fourth century of use. The university completed a comprehensive renewal and replacement project in 1999 to 2000. The major components of the project were restoration of the architectural features, such as floor plans and paneling, a replacement of mechanical systems, safety upgrades, and repair and stabilization of the walls and foundation. Today, it continues in use as an academic building for the College of William & Mary. Faculty offices are on the third floor, and the rest are classrooms. Hmm. I had a brochure from William & Mary when I was looking at colleges. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I have to admit, once you started talking about it, I realized I actually wrote a paper about this in grad school because of it being the first like school library. Oh, cool. But I don't know any of this stuff, so go on. <laughs> about a good paper <laughs> i know nothing oh man i yeah we'll not talk about that <laughs> all right so ghosts because this is spooky because of its involvement in the war there are many murmurings about may who may reside within the walls of the Wren building though the building is filled with the living because it's a classroom as classes official events church services weddings and museum exhibitions are still had held inside the Wren building is also thought to be filled with the dead both above and below the building's foundations dun, dun, dun. all the dead people <laughs> ghosts of soldiers who perished in the hospital are said to dwell in the building they are typically assumed to be revolutionary war soldiers although given the building's history it is also probable that some of the apparitions are from the civil war as these ghosts are commonly heard in eerie footsteps that echo throughout the building, more are actually seen. You have been able to look closely at the ghosts for identifying uniforms and other regalia. So you see them, but you don't get a good enough look to actually tell which word is. Oh, okay. Huh. There is a statue of Lord Baudetort? Baudetort? Baudetort, probably, because it's French. You don't pronounce that T. Lord <laughs> Baudetort. That is rumored to grant those who touch it a good grade. Where was that when I was in college? A oh my gosh, I would rub that entire thing. I'd be like buffing it like <laughs> Mr. Miyagi. Yes. Uh, there is also another legend that says sweethearts who walk across the bridge behind the Crimdell and kiss at the top will marry and live happily ever after. Ooh. However... If they split up, they will be cursed unless one pushes the other into the crimdale. <laughs> okay. Man, that's fun. I, I'm i okay with that. I think I would just like, Terry would be real mad at me, but I would definitely show, shove him in. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure somebody made that up as an excuse to just throw X's into our river. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Some students have seen ghosts in the Wren, including one described as a soldier patrolling. He roams on the third floor near a room known to be where the soldier died from injuries sustained during the Revolutionary War. Some have noted that this soldier seems to visit students attempting all-nighters. Oh. <laughs> Man, I did a lot of all-nighters, so I would have had a lot of ghostly visits. Is he visiting, or are they just, like, so sleep-deprived and delirious that they think they see him? You know, I think both are pretty logical. <laughs> Yeah, because all-nighters are rough. <laughs> My best friend. So we were, like, on two nights of pretty much all-nighters. We hadn't slept forever. And we were just chugging energy drinks. Like, <sighs> that Mountain Dew version one. Horrible. <sighs> yeah. Horrible, 
for you. But we drank so many of them, she started hallucinating. I was like, do you hear them? And I was like, hear what? And she's like, the gophers. They're so loud. See them? And I was like, oh, sweetie, we got to go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, that was fun. That was the first time that I saw somebody hallucinate from uh, sleep deprivation. So that was fun. (laughs) Oh, man. So... Sir Christopher Wren, the architect, is also rumored to pace the building on foot to appreciate his purported design. Classes held in this building are often interrupted by the terrifying screams of somebody in agony. Uh, no. <laughs> when somebody will check to see where the screams are coming from, they find no one. Yikes. I'll pass on that one. Yeah, I'm yeah. good. I want the class that doesn't get interrupted by blood-curdling screams. It's like some four love like freshman hazing, you know? Yeah. Somebody tells you about it and you show up and you're like, oh my God, what's happening? Everybody's like, it just happens. Just oh, do your work. The sounds of mysterious footsteps throughout the building, screams, object moving on their own, and sightings of a French soldier walking through the halls make Wren one of the most haunted places on campus. There's also a crypt. Really? Yes. Oh, so in early... 1729, contractor Henry Carey Jr. built the Wren Chapel, and below it, he built a crypt. It became the resting place of Governor Bodator, Sir John Randolph, Peyton Randolph, and a lot of other remarkable remarkable Virginians. Hmm. However, this resting place has not been incredibly peaceful. In the Civil War, when the Union forces seized the city and took over the William & Mary campus, the Wren was ravaged. In addition to burning the wren, Union soldiers looted the crypt, robbed the silver, and other precious items from their coffins. The litany of ghosts that are frequently spotted on campus may very well originate from these burial vaults that were disturbed. Oh, man. You know, I don't blame them. Somebody yeah. my gold and shit. I'd haunt you, too. Real talk. And I mean, as many places, as many times as this place was, like, caught, like, set on fire, like, that's also not going to help the ghost problem. Mm-mm, not at all. I used to hang out at Lyon College in Batesville, Arkansas a lot, and it caught on fire when it was an orphanage, and it was haunted as hell. Everybody, like, I would always be staying, and they had, like, bunk beds, and I'd be on the bottom deck, and, like, the door would keep on opening and slamming against the bed, and I'd be like, what is going on? They're like, oh, it's just the ghost. No big deal. I was like, huh? It's fine. It's talking fine. about? <laughs> no. So, the Wren Building is a National Historic Landmark, and it's one of the several sites on the Colonial Ghost Tour. On the tour, you will learn and experience even more about the history and hauntings of the Wren Building and the William & Mary campus. You might even encounter a soldier or more from the Revolutionary and Civil Wars, bringing a new meaning to the term living history. I was really proud of myself for that one. Nailed it. (laughs) Yeah, so, oldest college in the country. That's cool. Yeah. I've always wanted to go to Colonial Williamsburg. And I do like revolutionary like history. So should go sometime. Yes. yes. Girls trip. <laughs> Let's okay. do a cross country ghost hunt. Yes, please. Be amazing. We have yeah. to bring our friend Lana because she and I keep discussing starting our own ghost hunting show. Ooh. Starting with investigating my house and then going from there. So we need to. I support this. Yes, yes. What do you got for me? So I, okay. Two of my stories are kind of short. And then one of my stories is kind of long. So I think I'm going to do one of the short ones and then the long one later. And then the the short one after that. 
Okay. Well, you know, all mine are long, so we're good. Okay, good. (laughs) I can't can't be like short winded. I just, I am incapable. I don't, I don't understand. Okay. (laughs) So I think I'm going to do my random one first. Ooh, okay. And Kina gave me the word boats. Yeah, I felt that since you gave me car, we'll just stay with transportation. <laughs> yes, I like it. So we are going to talk about La Petite Roche, Little Rock. This is information that I found that was written by William B. Worthen, who is part of the, Arcan- uh, the Historic Arkansas Museum, the HAM. I worked there! Yes, I thought oh, you'd you like think- that. Ex director, he retired. Yes, yes. And this, I mean, this is a little bit older. This is from 2012 when it was published, but I mean, it's still accurate. So, yeah, he's a Little Rock legend. He is. He's very big. So, the Little Rock is the rock outcropping on the Arkansas River used as a navigation point during the early exploration of what would become the state of Arkansas. The town of Little Rock was established near this point and sometimes called the Point of Rocks. It is the first rock on the Arkansas River as one ascends from the Mississippi. This is where the foothills of the Washtom Mountains first touched the river, creating a natural plateau above the floodplain. The rock itself is sandstone deposited originally in a deep marine environment 320 to 300 million years ago part of what geologists call the Jack Fork found formation, which I had a teacher in college who taught English, but he was also a geologist and he went on and on about Jack Fork formation. So that was kind of a big deal for me to read. So Jean-Baptiste Bernard de la Harpe, one of the earliest European explorers in the region, observed the changing geology of the water's edge in 1722. On April 9th, he noted quote-unquote, rocks sticking out of the ground. So eloquent. Certainly a reference to, especially, that first rock up the river, but he did not name it. La Harpe saved his exuberance for what he called the French rock, La Rochere Francois, the bluff of mountainous rock, up the bend and north of the river, now labeled Big Rock. The French called the smaller outcropping on the south bank La Petite Rochere, the Little Rock. With the term's earliest appearance on a map occurring in 1799, and in the 1950s, the term La Petite Roche achieved some local popularity as a name for the outcropping. So in 1822, August 20th, 1822, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, or the Arkansas Gazette, described the rock with this. It projects several feet into the river, forming below it a fine basin for boats, and its top reaches perhaps about midway between low watermark and the summit of the bank of the river. The name Little Rock was given it by the Aborigines, or the early white settlers of the country to distinguish it from the Big Rock. So several early accounts tell of the rock being totally submerged by the Arkansas River at highest stage. In 1818, the United States restricted the Quapaw Indians to a reservation in Arkansas, the western boundary of which, known as the Quapaw Line, began at the Point of Rocks and extended due south. Arkansas Post became the territorial capital in 1819, but the need for a more centralized and less swampy location resulted in the seat of, yeah, I know. Good old Arkansas. <laughs> swampy, swampy Arkansas. It's just a giant swamp. <laughs> it is. Uh, I've lived in so many swampy areas at this point that made me giggle. <laughs> right? I know. Like, my, oh, God, I can't even think about my backyard right now. Anyway, so looking for the less swampy location resulted in the seat of Arkansas territory shifting to Little Rock in 1821. And then if you're, like, familiar with this area in Hot Springs, there's, like, the Quapaw Quarters as well. Like, the whole central Arkansas area. So, 
1824, the Quapaw were removed from central Arkansas, opening the reservation settlement. The Little Rock saw the town grow up all around it. And as the city of Little Rock became established, ferries crossed the Arkansas River at the Rock, and riverboats docked immediately downstream from it. Over the years that the Arkansas River was the lifeblood of the town, the Little Rock remained an important landmark. On May 31, 1872, Congress authorized the Little Rock Bridge Company to construct a bridge across the river at the Point of Rocks to be available to all railroads, terminating at the river, as well as to wagon traffic. Mm. So, work began on a quote-unquote shore pier at the Point of Rocks in October of 1872. Several tons of rock have been cut away and thrown into the river, so much so as to greatly change the appearance of the rock from the lower side. Stupid industrialization, always running landmarks. <laughs> Two days later, the paper urged some artists to take a photograph of the Little Rock, from which our city derives its name, before it is destroyed by the ruthless hand of civilization. Right on. <laughs> Hell yeah, Bill. Right. <laughs> ruthless hand. <laughs> so dramatic. I love, it. <laughs> I love it so much. Though the rock suffered significant reduction, this bridge was never completed. What the fuck? Okay. Whatever. The first permanent bridge was built a mile upstream by the Bering Cross Bridge Company. On December 8, 1883, a group of businessmen organized the Little Rock Junction Railway Company to build a bridge connecting the Little Rock and Fort Smith Rail Line with the Little Rock, Mississippi River, and Texas Railway. The Arkansas Democrat, on December 10, 1883, reported that while the bridge was pa will pass over the historic Little Rock, from which this city takes its name, I... It's weird having to say Little Rock and then the town of Little Rock. <laughs> I'm just out of it today. It will be necessary to remove but a small portion of the point to make the wall necessary for the function of the swing span. The company did not rely on the congressional sanction of the old Little Rock Bridge Company, so the Corps of Engineers claimed not to have the authority to approve or disprove of the plan for the junction bridge. But Corps' officials stated that they would have no objection to construction if a couple of slight changes in the plans were made. One change involved raising the bridge by 0.5 feet, so half a foot, and the other required additional surgery on the rock, including excavation entirely through the point of rocks, so that the channel opening be clear at and immediately downstream from the bridge abutment, the foundation of which was the rock itself. Y'all, leave, leave it alone! <laughs> leave it alone. On February 4th, 1884, L.D. McGlashan, the construction engineer, anchored his barge at the Point of Rocks to begin making soundings for the first pier. And then on December 8th, 1884, the Junction Bridge opened to traffic, which can I just say here, that's probably the fastest any construction of a road has ever gone in the state of Arkansas, I swear to God. That is the most accurate thing that's ever been said on this podcast. <laughs> I'm looking at you, I-630. It, I'm pretty sure they have been doing construction on that since I was like seven. Also 67. Zeke. Zeke's from yes. Wisconsin and he moved here or he, here. I'm not in Arkansas anymore. He moved to Arkansas <laughs> like 15 years ago and it's been under construction the entire time that he lived oh, God. in that area. Freaking A. Good together, Arkansas. <laughs> right. Fun fact through that construction zone last year, my uh, cousin wasn't paying attention while driving and rear ended a van full of inmates. <laughs> Oh God! How'd that go down? <laughs> uh, it was, it was interesting. But anyway, oh, so yes, story. <laughs> right? I know. I just share other people's terrible stories. I'm sorry. 
1932, The Rock suffered one more reduction. Leave The Rocks alone. <laughs> All The Rocks are going to be little if you keep cutting into them. Whatever. The Civitan Club proposed marking the Little Rock as a historic site, but it concluded that the many railroad tracks in the area would endanger visiting tourists. It persuaded the Missouri Pacific Company to allow a portion of the rock to be removed and transported to a more accessible spot. Thus, a 4,700-pound piece of the rock was detached without damage to the foundation of the Junction Bridge and moved to the grounds of City Hall. In 1970, the Junction Bridge was rebuilt to bring it into conformity with the needs of the McClellan-Kerr-Arkansas River Navigation System. That is a mouthful. A new pier had to be constructed in the river off the Point of Rocks to support the South Lift Tower. And the reinforced concrete rest pier at the rock became the support shelf for the southernmost truss section of the bridge. In 2001, the junction bridge, no longer used by the railroad, was given to the city of Little Rock as part of a larger real estate transaction. The junction bridge was then turned into a pedestrian walkway, which, have you been on it? I've been on it. Yeah, I've been on it. It's really cool. I think part of our engagement photos were taken on it. I can't remember. (laughs) I blocked that day out. Yeah, we so, like to park on the North Little Rock side because there's less people over there. And then we walk yes. over to the Little Rock side and then hang out. Yes, this is a good plan. So following that renovation to make it a, a pedestrian walkway, the city removed some of the dirt surrounding what rain, remains of the rock formation and created this plaza, which is the La Petite Roche project, which is like where the pavilion and all of that is like basically Riverfront Park now. Yeah. So, so the rock that's down where we used to park when we would go bar hop and all of that yeah. is not the actual rock, if I recall correctly. It is a, like, replica. And that's where the plaque is and all of that. And you know that big eagle statue down there? Mm-hmm. It's, like, near that. Oh, okay. I've I think probably just, seen it. Yeah, I think we probably have, like, a picture somewhere of me sitting on it or something. I don't know. <laughs> But yes, yeah, so that's La Petite Roche, and it's really fascinating to me that a whole city can be named after something so, like, small. Mm-hmm. Like, he's literally like, there's a, there's a tiny rock, and they're like, dude, that would be a great name for a town. <laughs> What's also interesting is a lot of the early towns in Arkansas were named after Native American, yeah. like, the Native American term for that town, so it's one of the first ones where it's like... Hey. Yeah, and like I I almost did. I almost talked about the naming of uh Petty Jean Mountain. Ooh, that's a good one too. But it's the same kind of thing for me there. Like it's it's weird to me that, you know, it's named for a little girl that died up there and it went from La Petite Jean to Petty Jean. Mhm. So, I don't know cuz we're butcherers of language here. <laughs> well. I mean, you guys have heard our accents. I mean, it just that's why, like, I try desperately to learn another language, and I've I've taken lots of classes, but, like, the Arkansas just makes it sound so stupid. Like, right. I can read other languages, but when I talk, I just sound like a goddamn hick. I hate it, because the Arkansas does not go away. I took six years of Spanish. I have competed in Spanish language contests, won awards. I sound like an asshole when I speak in Spanish, and I need to get back into it. And my, my therapist told me to start learning a new language, and I thought about brushing up back on Spanish, but I think I would just butcher it. Maybe I'll go for French this time and just butcher that then. <laughs> I only know a few words like, je ne sais pas. It just means, I don't know. 
Voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir? Ce soir? Je m'appelle Kina. Yeah, nailed it. La petite roche. What's up? Yeah, oh, I, I've been to France and the whole time I was there, I was like, I have to learn French. I have to learn French. And I got back and I went, took a French class. I'm like, I suck at French. I suck at it. Because it's just the hick in me. It makes, his French is such like everything is slurred together and it's so mm -hmm. beautiful. And I just, I it sounds horrible coming out of me. I don't yeah. know. Luckily, if you go to France, they have pictures for all, like, dumb Americans. Oh, okay. So, like, even, like, the little, like, go sign is, like, a little person, like, in motion. Yeah. They really dumb it down for us. So, I appreciate Thank you. that. Thank you, nations of the world, for dumbing it down for us Americans who are crap at language. Yes. And I, I'm one of those people also, like, if I go to a foreign country, I always try. Yeah. <laughs> and then there, because I went with this college trip and we went with a once we got to france they paired us up with other people from different states and we were with mississippi and michigan i think but the mississippi people are like you speak english we're from mississippi we're american speak american and then they were trying to like hand them american money and they're like take american we're the greatest country in the world blah 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 Great. and we're like we are not with them like we would generally try and we'd be nice and then people like we speak english but if you're a dick they were like we don't speak english <laughs> we're like the yeah. only country in the world that doesn't force us to learn at least like two or three languages when we're kids real talk and, yeah. and it, shows. <laughs> it shows it's awful it's so bad yeah like a, a girl we worked with at layman spoke three languages just beautifully but she's from france so mm -hmm. <laughs> like she learned English and Spanish and she just speaks beautiful just every language but oh yeah I am that person that like even though I don't want my own kids every one of my friends kids I buy them like language books oh yeah and so like I'm the educational toy aunt and I if I had a kid it would be learning I would it would be such an asshole because I would make it learn like seven languages that's my plan if I ever procreate. But I also live in like a super bilingual city now. So definitely yeah, trying. Good. Trying. It just sounds so dumb coming out of my face hole. Yeah, I need to brush up on my Spanish. I used to love it. I used to teach. I used to teach a first grade class Spanish once a week. And now I'm just like, uh, <laughs> donde esta el biblioteca? What? Like <laughs> when I was taking Spanish, we had one kid that just kept saying, Donne la sal la pantalones, like where are my pants? And that's like the one thing I remember. <laughs> Love so, it. Good times. All right. So since we've had fun, let me bring it down with some morbid. Let's make it weird. Okay. I thought I would just throw this in the middle so that we have, you know, a couple more stories to like bring it back up towards the end. It's a good but, call. Uh, yeah, it's gonna get dark, y'all. So we're gonna talk about the Harp brothers that were America's first and maybe most psychopathic serial killers. And I know that in episode 10, I said that H.H. Holmes was the first serial killer in America, but I am technically both on right en both ends because the Hart brothers began murdering in colonial America. Aha. Before it was a country, an independent so nation. So technically they're both right. So don't at me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like I found this, on accident i didn't know anything about them but i kept googling like first serial killer in the united states and it kept showing hh Holmes. so i'm like i know that i didn't mess up but yeah the technicality i guess yes 
Anywho, the Harp brothers were not only the first serial killers in America, but also two of the most gruesome. Buckle up, guys. (laughs) This is going to be good. It is said that they killed at least 39 people, though no one can say for sure. And like many serial killers to come, they had a signature move. If a body was found with the guts ripped out and an open chest cavity filled with stones, it was a telltale sign that the Hart brothers committed the murder. Oh, that's a very strange calling card. Okay. Yeah, it's very specific. And then a lot of times they'd use that to like weigh them down in water. So like okay. kick them off stuff. So That makes yeah. sense. Very brutal. Ooh. Yeah, it, it gets rough. So they were originally from North Carolina. Micah Big Harp and Wiley Little Harp were born probably as Joshua and William Harper around 1770. And they traveled across the country through Tennessee, Kentucky, Illinois, and Mississippi, where they just killed whenever they were provoked. And spoiler alert, everything provoked them and they killed a lot of people. A lot of rage. So not a whole lot is known about the brothers' lives. And what happened before they started this, like, murdering sprees. And it's also really hard to separate the fact from the legend because they kind of became immediate legends through all this. A lot of historians say that it is probably true that they were born in Orange County, North Carolina, to a Scottish family. Um, They think that that was their real name, but they're not sure And they think that they arrived from Scotland around 1759. And according to this theory or this part of history that people are kind of thinking that's the true version, their fathers were Tories who fought on the British side during the Revolutionary War, but then just stayed here when it was over. Some people believe that their bloodlust and revenge was motivated by the way their family was treated by their patriotic neighbors. But a lot of people just said they were psychopaths that just killed for no reason whatsoever. So... There's a whole lot of gray area because also this is the 1770s. Like there wasn't a lot of written history about things. So it's just, you know, families telling families. So a lot of oral histories on this part. So it's hard to tell what's true and what's not true. But I mean, oral history is very important, but sometimes you don't get the facts. During the American Revolution, Captain James Wood provided an eyewitness account that stated that the Hart brothers had joined a loyalist gang who took advantage of the wartime lawlessness. These gangs were war criminals. They raped, stole, burned down properties, and murdered patriot colonists. According to one account, the gang, of which Harpers were part, managed to kidnap three teenage girls. There was also one more girl, but she was saved by the captain whose name was Frank Wood, and he managed to shoot and wound Wiley Little Harp. Every time I think of Wiley, I think Wiley Coyote. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Captain Wood's daughter, so the guy that shot him, was later kidnapped by Big Harp and wound up marrying her. So she became Susan Wood Harp. Little Harp would marry too, and he married a minister's daughter named Sarah Rice. The women were treated worse than animals. They were beaten, held in chains, and raped. Some stories say that Maria and Susan became pregnant several times, and in every case, the brothers killed their children. But that seems to be more of a legend, because a lot of things come up later on in the story that kind of refute that. During these early years, accounts of the Hart brothers' exact whereabouts and activities remain a little murky. It is estimated that in 1797, their murder streak really ramped up. The brothers were living in Knoxville, Tennessee, but they fled town after they were charged for stealing hogs and murdering a man they found in a river. This was the first time that their signature 
characteristic of cutting their victim up and weighing them down with stones was seen and documented. In between their criminal activities, the brothers managed to have children with their wives, and the families moved around together from place to place. So they actually took them with them, which a lot of times when you see people that have kind of shady jobs and they're doing all these things, they don't take their family with them. So that's a little yeah. a little strange. But if they're being chained and beaten and stuff, then they probably don't want them to escape. But like I said, the whole killing children and them being chained up is one of those things that people don't know actually really happen. But they were kidnapped, so unless you got some Stockholm stuff going on, it's probably more realistic. Their next stop after Tennessee was Kentucky, where they murdered a peddler and at least three out-of-towners. A local innkeeper linked the killers with the murders and notified the authorities, and they were able to actually catch up with them and arrest the brothers along with the rest of their family. But their time in jail didn't last long, and they all managed to escape. And the first thing they did was kill the innkeeper that tipped off the police. Man. (laughs) Soon after, in April of 1799, James Garrard, the governor of Kentucky, placed a reward of $300 on the head of each brother. Since there is an inflation rate of 1,982.05%, that would be $6,246 today, so... I can math sometimes. Yay, math. When I Google. <laughs> ah, but that's a lot of money. It is. 6000 per brother. Like, yeah. That's a lot of money. Uh, meanwhile, the newly freed Hart brothers continued to kill and spent the summer doing so. They left a trail of dismembered bodies from Kentucky back to Knoxville. The brothers are very indiscriminate with who they killed. They murdered men, women, and children without any regards to... Basically anybody that was in their way when they were ready to kill somebody. This is one of those stories that I wish that the people listening could see my face because it's just like (laughs) sheer horror and like speechlessness. Okay, this next sentence is probably the worst thing that I have in this whole thing. So brace yourself. (laughs) Content warning. (laughs) They killed a girl before they cut her body into one inch strips. They slaughtered her entire family and the family's slaves. A massacre that took eight lives. Fucking yikes. Oh my god. Okay, not only... I can't fathom murdering somebody, but taking the time, like, one inch? That's meticulous. That is... Oh, that's very psychopathic. Oh, it's terrifying that people like this exist. Jesus. Fuck. Okay. The Harp brothers appreciated the opportunities for financial gain, but their true motivation for killing seemed to just stem from a bloodlust. So... They weren't actually robbing these people. They were just murdering them. If they got money, they're like, cool. But it was just all about the murder. No other reason. That's that's probably the most terrifying thing about serial killers. It's a lot of them don't take anything. They don't do anything. They just want to kill you. Jesus. So on their way north, Big Harp and Little Harp killed five more men. When they arrived in southern Illinois, they found refuge in a place called Cave in the Rock. This was a stronghold of Samuel Mason Oh, my, my voice. <laughs> okay. This was a stronghold of Samuel Mason, a notorious river pirate and gang leader who attacked the slow flatboats that were sailing on the Ohio River. Very soon, the Mason gang noticed that something was not right with the brothers. Some of the extremely violent and appalling things they did to people were too much for even a pirate gang. 
Things went too far when the harp started to capture people on the top of the cliff, strip them naked, and then just force them to jump. Uh. So, like, not even push them. They would make them jump. It, it's just... Can you imagine? I'm try- Like, I'm trying to... F- oh, God. I just, like, can't even fathom. So, all I could think of is, that. like, they would probably give them the ultimatum. Like, you jump and kill yourself, or what we're going to do to you is going to be way worse. I feel like I'm one of those people that would try to, like... I'd be like, okay, I'll jump, but I'm going to take you with me. Jesus. So, after this, the Mason gang decided that it was time for them to leave and drove them off out of their stronghold. So, even a ruthless pirate gang was like, you guys are too much. I can't with you. You gotta go. Thanks. Near the end of that summer, while in Kentucky, Big Harp's daughter would not stop crying. Out of reflex, he smashed the child's head against a tree, killing her instantly. It was the only murder he expressed remorse over. Well, that's kind of him. So this is the thing that, like, a lot of people are like, oh, he just murdered every baby ever. But the only time he had any remorse for killing somebody was his child. So it does seem like he he did admit that he felt bad for that one. Doesn't make it better, but I just don't think that he was slaughtering babies. I think that part was a bit exaggerated. Yikes. And then he never harmed another one of his children. So, it, I don't know. So at least that part. I don't think that he was just killing babies, I think. His babies. He was killing other people. Uh, I don't know. <sighs> it's a weird justification. <laughs> it's a, no. <laughs> All right. On August 24th, 1799, the brothers were finally tracked down by authorities who had been searching for them. They were told to surrender, but they tried to flee. In the process, Big Harp was shot twice and then subdued with a tomahawk axe. He confessed to 20 murders while he lay dying. Moses Stegall was one of the members of the posse who caught him. He was also an avenging husband and father whose wife and child were killed by the Harp brothers. So while Big Harp is laying there dying and conscious, Stegall sawed his head off. Oh, okay. Like you do. I mean, if you're in a pit of blinded rage, like you killed my wife and kid, I could see. I would also saw your head off. Yeah. And then, not only that, the head was spiked on a pole near the Stigall homestead, and the place where the head was standing is known as Harp's Head Road. I have a picture of it. <laughs> not the head, awesome. obviously. Okay. But they have a historical marker, like, this is where his head was spiked. Huh. In a seemingly unended slew of lucky breaks, Wiley Harp managed to escape. He rejoined the gang, the Mason gang, the pirate ones that kicked him out. So, Little Harp took on an alias name for four years while he ran with the gang. So, I'm assuming he was just like, my brother, man, is the one that did all this. You gotta let me in. Blah, blah, blah. But when the gang leader, Samuel Mason, was shot, Wiley Harp tried to claim the reward for his head. Wow. What a fucking moron. But he was recognized by the law. So, finally, in January of 1804, the last Harp brother was executed by hanging. And his head was also spiked on a pole on Natchez Road, thus concluding the tale of the Hart Brothers and America's first serial killers. Damn. It's interesting that they both ended up with the same fate of having their heads on spikes. Yeah, I think that by the time they caught the brother, they're like, you deserve this. Yes. Ugh. Tragic. Just absolutely tragic. Uh, yeah. And I can't believe I didn't know about it. They sound horrible. Yeah. You know, we listen to a lot of podcasts and watch a lot of true crime stuff, but I've never heard of them. So I haven't either. Yeah. Yeah. So technically, they're the first 
serial killers, but I think H.H. Holmes gets it just because he's more of a modern America, like, serial killer. Yeah, and I saw someone else that it's is attributed as the first killer in colonial U.S., but I can't remember his name. I almost did a story on him, but I didn't. But yeah, so, I mean, there's, like, several people that can be attributed to that. I promise my next story is not this dark. <laughs> okay, good. I I was just, like, peeking back over my historical notes, which I'm about to do, which I'm going to do some weird jumping around because these notes ended up being, like, 20 pages. Oops. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not going to read the whole 20 pages that I put down, but it gets a little darker than I meant for it to, but sorry, it's going to happen. <laughs> well, then I'm going to end it on some salacious history. So Okay, good. We're going to light it up. So for my historical story... I wanted to talk about the life of Geronimo, who's an Indian, and he's a little later in history, but still goes to, like, the founding, like, Geronimo, Texas, and stuff like that, so. If you're going to talk about early American, you have to talk about Native Americans, because they were here first. Yes, and, like, I, I okay, I'm, like, stressed a little bit about doing the story, because I picked him. Because I, there's so much in early American history that gives a negative light to Native Americans. Yeah. Which is bullshit on so many levels. And it really bothers me. And it's definitely something that I could hop on my soapbox and like ride that bitch into the sun. But so I picked him. But then like as I was going through my notes, I realized like some of his stuff is kind of morbid. So just strap in. We're going (laughs) to, we're going to get through this together, guys. No, it's exciting because right. I know like pop culture, you got like Doctor Who, whose catchphrase was Geronimo, and then you got all this yeah. other stuff. But I don't think a lot of people actually know about the real man. So yes, it's very exciting. And actually, let me let me skip to the back of my notes and tell you all about the pop culture references first. So like it's been used in military usage as the names of like paratroopers for the U.S. Army. The um, their emblem. I'll show you a picture. So there's their emblem. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. The Geronimo, the bird with the name on it. When they jump out of planes, they say Geronimo to show that they have no fear of jumping out of an airplane. I would scream something like, oh, my fucking God, or something like that, because (laughs) I have a fear of jumping out of airplanes. Oh, my God, me too. I know when I met Zeke, like, forever ago, we were on our first date, and I was like, oh, yeah, jumping out of an airplane would be exciting and fun. And, like, now I'm like, fuck that. I was lying. I wanted to seem interesting, but I'm not doing that. Like our esteemed <laughs> commander-in-chief would say, wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, but not about like, that life. When you're younger, you have this, like, invincibility thing, like, I could do whatever, it's fun. And then when you get older, you're like, no, that's dangerous. Why would I chance that? There's, no. It feels like a terrible fucking idea. Yeah, Zeke's jumped out of a plane, but I'm like, mm, no. I don't. Isn't that, like, part of the deal with them, though? Um, I told him that I'm willing to do the thing in Vegas as a plane jumping simulator, but you're only, like... If you fall, you're not going to die. You feel like you're jumping out of a plane, but it's just the air. It's like you're in a giant tube. So oh, can... yeah. I'm yeah. willing to do that. Yeah. I am not willing to jump out of a plane. Yeah, I would have to be highly medicated or drunk. I don't know. One of them. I'd have to be. I think the only way I could do it is if someone strapped me into, like, one of those baby Bjorns on the front of the instructor. <laughs> and, like, they jumped out of the plane and I had no way of getting away from being strapped to them. 
Yeah, I think that, I mean, yeah, most of the time, unless you've been certified, that's how you do the tandem or whatever. But yes. I would still, I, I don't know. I would I mean, cry like a bitch baby the entire way down. I feel like roller coasters, you get that adrenaline rush. I enjoy that, but I just think that being that, I don't like heights anyway. And then I also, airplanes, I'm cool with once you get up there and you're levelized and you're whatever. But like take off, I'm always like, oh my God. <laughs> I love flying, but everyone, before I admit this, we are in the cone of silence. This is a judgment-free zone. Do you not judge me? I've never been on a roller coaster. I'm scared yeah. of them. We should go when you're here. <laughs> I'm willing to do it if it's not one that my feet hang. Yeah, those are a little scary. Kind of scary. The only yeah. one that freaks me out are the kind where it's just an arm that goes over your lap, but you still go upside down. So there's a huge space yeah, on your nope. side that's not... Like, if I have the thing that goes over you, like a vest that I can hold on to, I'm cool. But I don't like the arm thing because... I don't feel like I'm strapped in enough. <laughs> All of these are giving me palpitations just thinking about them. <laughs> yeah, we were on the way to like the rock and roll something at Universal. And uh, the whole time he's like, is that, a, is that a screw on the floor? And then we sat down and it was one of the arm things. And I'm like, this is it. Like nothing else is going to hold us in. And I was freaking out. And he's like, yeah, but very rarely people fall out and I'm like oh my god and then they were like oh, the arm went up and they're like okay you guys gotta get off because of lightning and they wouldn't let us on but I was like yikes thank you Jesus <laughs> look thank you, thank you hippie Jesus for saving me from that he, then I didn't... yeah <laughs> he was looking out for me that day because we didn't have to go on it so terrifying we've befriended somebody that works at Universal now so now I trust oh, yeah. it because if she works there our friend Erica from Cheers from the Grave Yes. Yeah. I Erica, we I promise I'll try a, a roller coaster there if we go down there. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. All right. Sorry. I've derailed. Continue. No, you're fine. So Geronimo, he also, in military terms, the U.S. military used the code name Geronimo. Geronimo, really? <laughs> Geronimo for the raid that killed Osama bin Laden in 2011. Oh. I don't think but I... But I didn't... I feel like I remember that happening, but here's the problem. This actually outraged a lot of Native Americans. So the operation was renamed Operation Neptune Spear, which is okay. But uh, Harlan Geronimo, who is supposedly Chief Geronimo's great-grandson, said to the Senate Commission on Indian Affairs, the use of Geronimo in the raid that killed bin Laden either was an outrageous insult or a mistake. And it is clear that from the military records released that the name Geronimo was used at times by military personnel involved for both the military operation and for Osama bin Laden himself. So it's kind of villainizing the name, and it's really shitty. So in pop culture, there are three towns that are named after him. One in Arizona, Oklahoma, and Texas. And my hubs went to high school in Geronimo, Texas. Oh, that must be close to me, but I don't know where that's it at. Is. It is. And he said that, I think it was 20 minutes before you get to Seguin. When I come down, I have been instructed to stop and, like, take a picture of the high school for him. Aww. So, I don't know. Does he have uh, to work? Is that why he's not coming? Yes. Somebody's got to make, it, make the money in the family. <laughs> <sighs> so, let's see. In... On October 18th of 1994, a 29-cent postage stamp showing Geronimo was issued by the USPS in the series of Legends of the West. And I remember that. 
I used to collect stamps. It was a big thing. <laughs> Nerd. I know. I'm such a fuck. I I collected the state quarters too. That's right. Had one of those special like commemorative books that you stick them in the little holes and it goes all the way. Yes. It. Oh my god. My level of history nerd is my collecting when I was a kid was salt cellars, which is like the little uh, glass and porcelain dishes with the little spoons, but salt that they use in like antebellum eras. That is wonderful. That's what I collected. I have a whole case in the our foyer or whatever. And Zeke's like, what the fuck is this? And I'm like, they are historic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look at them. them. Since yes. I was a small child. Yeah. So instances of Geronimo being used in music are many so there's the 1953 song by les elgert and his orchestra called geronimo in 1963's oh my god 1963 <laughs> the shadows also have a song called geronimo elton john's song in 1971 called indian sunset has lyrics by bernie toppin that erroneously suggest geronimo was gunned down by the united states calvary while in the act of surrendering, but that's not true. Uh, Geronimo actually died by pneumonia exacerbated by horse riding accident. So a little shady that they're like, nah, he was gunned down. He wasn't. He had pneumonia. In 1972, Michael Martin Murphy came out with a song called Geronimo's Cadillac. And that song hit number 37 on the Billboard Hot 100, later to be covered by Cher and Hoyt Axton. And then in 1996... Geronimo is mentioned in a Cheryl Crow song called If It Makes You Happy. If it makes you happy. I love that song. I love it so much. I'm going to have to listen to it later. Uh, Flashbacks early 2000s. Right. Oh my God. In 2009, Morn Green did a song called Geronimo. 2012, Ferguson Geronimo was formed. They're an experimental rock band. So there's an artist, Walter Ferguson who did a photo of Geronimo sitting in a luxury locomobile. Locomobile. That word is hard, and we're going to leave it alone. So <laughs> You'll never say it again in your life. It is okay. Exactly. So the band called themselves Fergus and Geronimo from this photo and this artist. In 2014, indie band Shepherd wrote a song called Geronimo, which was a number one hit in Australia from April to May. And then in 2014, Crobot, which is an American rock band, has a song on their album, Something Supernatural, called Skull of Geronimo. Oh, that's dark. Right? I know. So there are all kinds of instances in literature and comics and television and radio of him, too. I'm not going to drag that all out. Doctor We're Who! Get... Yes, Doctor Who. Who's okay. it? I know we talk about being nerds all the time, but I literally have a TARDIS in my living room. Like a life-size TARDIS. <laughs> that her husband <laughs> built her because he can build anything. That was the first, like, major gift he made me. And I knew at that moment I was going to marry him. Like, it's beautiful. It's oh, my God. It's so shelf. beautiful. Yeah, it's a giant bookshelf that opens up into, like, three bookshelves. Oh, my God. And it has a little secret door where the phone box would be. And it has a little yes. uh, sonic screwdriver in there. <laughs> it's so cute. I want it so bad. If we had room for it, I would have stolen it. Oh, I'm such a nerd. Which one? Which doctor said Geronimo? Oh, God. Don't. No one tenant. No, he was Alonzi. Oh, it was Matt Smith. Right? Oh, yeah. That's why I don't remember it because I didn't watch very much of Matt Smith because I don't like him as a person. I'm sorry, Matt Smith. I don't. He was my favorite doctor. <laughs> David Tennant's my favorite doctor. Uh, anywho. 
Anyway, so for those who are like, who the hell is Geronimo? Let's have a little background. He was a prominent leader and medicine man for the Bedonkohe Band of the Apache tribe. And from 1850 to 1886, Geronimo joined with members of three Chiricahua Apache bands. The Ch- Oh my god, I was so confident in these words until I actually had to say them out loud. Chihinde, <laughs> the Sokanende, and the Nedne. Oh my Jesus Christ. Jet. Another tribe that we're not even going to try. To carry out numerous raids, as well as resistance to U.S. and Mexican military campaigns in the northern Mexico states of Chihuahua and Sonora, and in the southwestern American territories of New Mexico and Arizona. So Geronimo's raids and related combat actions were a part of the prolonged period of the Apache-United States conflict, which started with American settlement in Apache lands following the end of the World War with Mexico in 1848. Even though Geronimo is well-known, he was not a chief in the Chiricahua or the Bedonkohe bands. But since he was such a superb leader in raiding and warfare, he, let, he frequently led large numbers of women, men and women beyond his own following. And at any one time, he had about 30 to 50, 250 Apaches following him. Let's start with his early wife. Or life. Hearts are so hard. <laughs> Geronimo... <laughs> Was born to the Benicohe band. I've cracked. I've officially cracked this week. I think that it's like we are so strung out about these interviews that we are just not even human anymore. It's like I can't think. I can't word. I can't. I'm drunk at this point because that's the only way I was getting through this. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Stress level is too high. Exactly. Yeah. Funny. I need rum. Okay. Like. Right? Yeah, dance, puppet, dance. Yeah, like, my <laughs> husband is asleep in the next room right now, and I am so jealous of his fucking nap. It's just, ugh. Well, my I've husband's at work, so I can't really... But you didn't get to go to a Philly, like, Philly cheesesteak place for lunch called Used Guys, and I'm really jealous, because that sounds like an amazing place that goes with our podcast theme. It does, and we are definitely going there when I come down, I swear to God. <laughs> but anyway, okay. It has a giant mural of Ben Franklin and who, spoiler alert, it's my next topic. So we definitely have to go. (laughs) I'm so excited. Oh my God. Y'all are going to be so horrified by how much of a Ben Franklin fangirl I am. So yes. (laughs) Geronimo was born to the Bedon Kohe band of the Apache in Arispe, Sonora, near Turkey Creek, a tributary of the Gila River in the modern day state of New Mexico which was at that time part of Mexico, even though the Apaches disputed Mexico's claim on the, on the land. His grandfather, Mako, had been chief of the, uh, this Apache tribe, and Geronimo had three brothers and four sisters. His parents raised him according to Apache traditions. After the death of his father, though, his mother took him to live with the Ch- uh, Chihinde, and he grew up with them. Geronimo married a woman named Alope from the Nedni Chiricahua band of Apache when he was 17, and they had three children. She was the first of nine wives. Whoa. That's a lot. That's a lot of wives. On March 5th, 1858, though, a company of 400 Mexican soldiers. I keep doing hand motions. Like, I swear, this is why we need to be videos. A company of 400 Mexican soldiers from Sonora, led by Colonel Jose Maria Carrasco attacked Geronimo's camp outside of Janos while the men were in town trading. Among those killed were Geronimo's wife, children, and mother, which sucks. The loss of his family led Geronimo to hate all Mexicans for the rest of his life. And 
he and his followers would frequently attack and kill any group of Mexicans that they encountered. Recalling that at the time his band was at peace with the Mexicans, Geronimo remembered the incident as follows. And throughout my notes, I'm going to read several excerpts from his autobiography. Oh, wow. So this is part of it. Late one afternoon, when returning from town, we were met by a few women and children who told us that Mexican troops from some other town had attacked our camp, killed all the warriors of the guard, captured all of our ponies, secured our arms, destroyed our supplies, and killed many of our women and children. Quickly, we separated, concealing ourselves as best we could until nightfall, when we assembled at our appointed place of rendezvous, a thicket by the river. Silently, we stole in one by one, sentinels were placed, and when all were counted, I found that my aged mother, my young wife, and my three small children were among the slain. Oh my god. So sad. So, Geronimo's chief, Mangus Coloradus, which is Spanish for red sleeves, when you pronounce it correctly, but I did not sent him to Cochise's band for help in his revenge against the Mex- Mexicans. Okay, so Cochise is another famous Indian who I forgot to put stuff about. Have you ever seen Falling Skies? It's a TV show. No, but my mom talks about it all the time. So Okay, A, anyone who has not watched Falling Skies, I need you to finish listening to this podcast and then stop what you're doing and <laughs> go watch these, this show all the seasons. So my husband hates things with aliens in it. He loves this show. Oh. And it's really fascinating because in that show, all of the like regiments that are trying to fight the alien invasion are named after like Civil War type battalions and that kind of thing, which is really cool because one of the guys, like the main character was a history professor. Oh. Which is really fascinating. And then at one point they have, I don't really want to spoil it, but. There's another character that comes into play that's kind of a liaison and trying to help them destroy the aliens that are there, but he's also not human. And they call him Cochise because Cochise helped, like, span the bridges between these tribes to come together against their common enemy, which was the Mexican forces. Oh. So everyone should watch Falling Skies because it's really good. It gets a little weird in the last season, but what show doesn't? So... (laughs) So yeah, so Ger- yeah, so Geronimo and Co- yeah, looking at you, Dexter. But anyway, <laughs> so Geronimo and Cochise were around the same time. So it was during this incident that they actually named him Geronimo. So Geronimo's real name is Kojale, which means the one who yawns. But then after this like onslaught to kill these people that had slain his family, he was nicknamed Geronimo, and that's what he went by for the rest of his life. So the reason he got this nickname is that during the battle, he walked through this hail of bullets with like zero fucks given basically. And he attacked all these Mexican soldiers with a knife. Like he brought a knife to a gunfight, which is awesome. And uh, so some of the soldiers started calling him uh, or like calling to St. Jerome for help which in Spanish is Geronimo. Oh. And so he started, and so they say that, like, that's where they started calling him Geronimo because of this. I had no idea. That is so cool. I didn't either. I know. It's so cool. Like, I want a badass nickname, not because I, like, murdered people. Because <laughs> um, we know how that turned out in our serial killer episode. But, like, I just wish I had a cool nickname like that. Okay, so... Geronimo was also 
religious. And here's another excerpt from his book. So he was raised with the traditional religious views of his tribe. And in his autobiography, when he was questioned about his views on life after death, he said, as to the future state, the teachings of our tribe were not specific. That is, we had no definite idea of our relations and surroundings and afterlife. We believe that there is a life after this one, but no one ever told me as to what part of man lived after death. And we held that the discharge of one's duty would make his future life more pleasant. But whether that future life was worse than this life or better, we did not know, and no one was able to tell us. We hoped that in the future life, family and tribal relations would be resumed in a way we believed this, but we did not know it. But later on, he embraced Christianity, and he, I'm not going to read that excerpt, but basically his views changed a little bit, but I mean, he still stood by his, like, I know we go somewhere, but I'm not certain where kind of thing. And then in 1903, he ended up joining the Dutch Reformed Church, but four years later, he was expelled for gambling. (laughs) which is definitely some shit i would end up doing like okay let's be real if i don't get excommunicated from some church in my lifetime i don't think i will have lived like a full life it's true you've made some poor choices if you haven't right i'm I'm gonna have to work on that i'm 30 i should have already it should have already happened so uh yeah and then towards like the end of his life he was just kind of like meh ambivalent towards religion in general so after the massacre at Janos, which is also, Janos was also called Kaskaye, but we're going to call it Janos because I'm going to butcher that. So the first Apache raids on Sonora and Chihuahua took place during the late 17th century. To counter the early Apache raids on Spanish settlements, presidios were established at Janos in Chihuahua and at Fronteras in northern eastern modern state of Chihuahua. In 1835, Mexico had placed a bounty on Apache scalps, which, you know, we see that a lot in pop culture, taking the scalps. And even in Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards, the group of Jewish soldiers who go to try to kill Nazi soldiers are called the Apaches. And what is his name? Lando. Lando, or no. Aldo, Aldo Reigns. I was like, Lando Carissian? (laughs) (sighs) I need Jesus and probably like a nap. I don't know. But Aldo Reigns. I even have a friend named Aldo and I forgot the name Aldo. Anyway, but Aldo Reigns tells them that he wants like 50 Nazi scalps. And so that's where that kind of comes from. So two years after that, Mangus Coloradus became principal chief and war leader and began a series of retaliatory raids against the Mexicans and the Apache raids on Mexican villages were so numerous and brutal that no area was safe. Between 1820 and 1835 alone, some 5,000 Mexicans died in Apache raids and 100 settlements were destroyed. Later, as a leader, Geronimo was notorious for urging raids and war on Mexican provinces and American locations in the Southwest. So I originally went into these notes like, yeah, Geronimo, he's this great figure blah blah blah. like he he massacred a lot of people and i didn't mean for it to go that way but that's where we're at (laughs) so sorry guys history isn't something that is all tied up in like a delightful little bow like most of history is pretty tragic and horrible and awful so i mean you signed up for that when you listen to this podcast (laughs) exactly so strap in (laughs) (sighs) so Geronimo became extremely invested in continuing this, like, cycle of revenge warfare. Like, dude held a grudge. 
so then after that raid, they started raiding like Chihuahua and Sonora and taking livestock and the Apaches did to start like defeating the Mexican militia. And that's kind of where it started. And he took his revenge on them. Okay, so let's talk about the massacre at Casas Grandes. In 1873, the Mexicans once again attacked the Apache, which, not saying it's right, but I understand if it's just this ongoing conflict back and forth between them. After months of fighting in the mountains, the Apaches and Mexicans decided on a peace treaty at Casas Grandes, Chihuahua, Mexico. After terms were agreed, the Mexicans tr- Mexican troops gave mezcal to the Apaches, and while they were atta- intoxicated, they attacked and killed 20 Apaches and captured some. No, party foul. Which is, that is a major party foul. So the Apaches were forced to retreat into the mountains once again. So, like, they were lured out on false pretenses, or attacked and killed, and so they went back to the mountains. That's how I'd go down. They'd be like, you want some rum? I'd be like, fuck yeah, I do. And then right, murdered. Okay, look, I, I have a soft spot for mezcal. It's one of my favorite, favorite things. And, oh my god, it's so good. Like, my mouth is watering just thinking about it. Because I haven't had it in years, <laughs> but it was delicious. And I've drank too much of it, and that's why I haven't had it in years. But, like, that is 100% how I would go down. Like, they'd be like, let's be friends, and let's drink a lot. And I'd be like, alright, and then I'd wake up dead. Yep. Yep. Accurate. Yes. So, Geronimo, even though they were outnumbered, he decided to fight against both Mexican and United States troops, and he became famous for his daring exploits and numerous escapes from incarceration from these troops from 1858 to 1886. One such escape, as legend has it, took place in the Robledo Mountains of southwest New Mexico. The legend states that Geronimo and his followers entered a cave and the U.S. soldiers waited outside the entrance for him, but he never came out. Later, it was heard that Geronimo was spotted outside nearby, so he is magic. The second entrance through which he escaped has yet to be found, and the cave is still called Geronimo's Cave, even though no reference to this event or this cave has been found in in the historic or oral record. Moreover, there are many stories of this type with other caves referenced that state that Geronimo or other Apaches entered to escape troops but were not seen exiting. These stories are all, in uh, in all likelihood, apocryphal. I'm sure it's like a local legend, too, that kind of got yes. blown out of proportion. Yes. So those are the caves we need to go to if we have zombie apocalypse. So he, he wrote in his book, After about a year, some trouble arose between them and the Indians, and I took the warpath as a warrior, not as a chief. I had not been wronged, but some of my people had been, and I fought with my tribe, for the soldiers and not the Indians were at fault. At the end of his military career, he led a small band of 38 women, men, women, and children. They evaded thousands of Mexican and American troops for more than a year, making him the most famous Native American of the time and earning him the title of the worst Indian who ever lived among white settlers. Hmm. Again, I want a cool nickname. Not because I murdered people, but... Yeah. I've never... I mean, I have such a weird name anyway. I didn't need a nickname to set me apart because there's no other Kinas in my vicinity, so. <laughs> I walked this earth for 29 years as Ashley Jones. <laughs> Which, fun fact, I don't know if it still is, but when I looked it up in high school, was the second most common name in America behind John Smith. Yeah, I think that, like, our generation, there was a lot of Ashley's, Jessica's. Michelle. And Katie's. Yep. You know, and, like, my sister's generation, like, she's Heather, and there's so many fucking Heathers from the 70s. <laughs> like, yep. I mean, I just looked out that my dad's like, 
we're going to name it Conan. Like, it's going to happen. And my mom's like, all right, well, the female version's Kina, so let's do this. Nailed it. Yeah. Although my other sister's Eliza, so I guess that's a little different. But yeah, I like having a weird name. I couldn't wait to change my last name when I got married. And now it cracks me up how often people call me the wrong last name. And I'm completely okay with it. Yeah, I thought that going from Hockenberry would be easier, but people can't figure it out. But yeah, yeah. growing up as Hockenberry or Hockaloogie was not fun. Didn't yeah. enjoy that, but yeah, you roll with what you got. <laughs> yeah, now I get uh, with Rulo, I get Ruler or Rulio a lot. Oh. So yeah. But yeah, so I want a cool nickname. People that listen to the podcast help me come up with a good nickname. Good nickname. Besides Queen of TMI, because I love that, but it's it's not as catchy as Geronimo. Also, we need a cool nickname for our listeners. Yes, I've been trying to think of that. Yeah, if you're listening, and you should be, <laughs> come up with a nickname if you for come you up guys. With, yeah, if you come up with, like, the best nickname for all of our listeners, we'll send you something. Yes, we don't know what it is, but we'll send you something. Yeah. It might be a dog. I don't know. <laughs> we have a lot of them. Maybe not a dog. Maybe okay, more like a sticker or like merch or something. <laughs> yes. We will love you forever. So, yes. Yeah, so, he uh, was called Worst Indian Who Ever Lived. And then, according to James L. Haley, about two weeks after the escape, there was a report of a family massacred near Silver City. One girl was taken alive and hanged from a meat hook jammed under the base of her skull. Ah! Hate that. No. Hate it. Thanks. I hate it. Oh, my God. No. His Damn, I should have done morbid. So. His band was one of the last major forces of independent Native American warriors who refused to accept the United States occupation of the American West. Let's talk a little bit about the Geronimo campaign. Okay. So the Apache... What? I was like, my body is ready. My body is ready. Okay. The Apache-United States conflict was itself a direct outgrowth of the much older Apache-Mexican conflict. So, like, once he got done, like, terrorizing the Mexican government... He, like, stepped it up to the United States. Oh, okay. Okay, so on May 17th, 1885, a number of Apache, including Nana, Mangus, who is son of Mangus Coloradus, Chihuahua, Naiche, Geronimo, and their followers fled the San Carlos Reservation in Arizona after a show of force against the reservation's commanding officer, who was Britton Davis. The people who had lived as semi-nomads for generations disliked the restrictive reservation system. Department of Arizona General George Crook dispatched two columns of troops into Mexico, the first commanded by Captain Emmett Crawford and the second by Captain Wirt Davis. Each was composed of a troop of a cavalry, usually about 40 men and about 100 Apache scouts. They pursued the Apache through the summer and fall through Mexican Chihuahua and back across the border into the United States. Continually, the Apache were raiding settlements and killing other Native Americans and civilians and stealing horses. So basically, they were just like, we're going to lay waste to all your shit. I meant to write this down, but I think it's really fascinating. They It mentions the Apache scouts, but I think recently the last Apache code talker passed away. Yeah. And that's a whole like side road fascinating thing to me that they traded codes in Apache and... I don't know. It's just it's just really cool to me. So so while Apaches were shielded from the violence of warfare on the reservation, disability and death from diseases in the area were much more prevalent. On the other hand, rations were provided by the government, 
though at times the corruption of the Indian agents caused the rationing to be like super scarce. And that's why they decided to like break out of the reservation because they just were not about that shit. Oh, okay. So then Geronimo led his band of followers and breakouts from the reservations to return to their former nomadic lifestyle that was a lot about raiding and warfare. Following each breakout, Geronimo and his band would flee across Arizona and New Mexico to Mexico, killing and plundering as they went, and establishing a new base in the rugged and remote Sierra Madre Occidental Mountains. In Mexico, they were insulated from pursuit by U.S. armed forces. The Apache knew the rough terrain of the Sierras, which helped them to elude pursuit and protect them from attack. From Mexico, Apache bands also staged surprise raids back into the United States, often seeking to replenish his band's supply of guns and ammunition. In the raids in the United States, the Apaches moved swiftly and attacked isolated ranches, wagon trains, prospectors, and travelers. During these raids, Apaches often killed all the people they encountered in order to avoid detection and pursuit as long as possible before they slipped back into Mexico across the border. So the breakouts and the subsequent resumption of Apache raiding and warfare caused the Mexican army and militia to decide to try to kill or head off any renegade Apache bands, including Geronimo's, which just wherever they could be found. And because the Mexican army and the militia units of Sonora and Chihuahua were unable to suppress the several Chiricahua bands based in the Sierra Madre mountains in 1883, Mexico allowed the United States to send troops into Mexico to continue their pursuit of Geronimo's band and the band of other Apache leaders. So like Mexico is like, dude, I'm out of my depth. Send in your troops. Okay. So, The United States Army, operating under the command of General George Crook, successfully utilized scout and combat units recruited from among the Apache people and led by American officers. So if you wanted to fight an Apache, you had to think like an Apache, and so they brought in Apache soldiers. Okay, that makes sense. Which I don't know how I feel about that. Like, I feel like that's equal parts shady, but also smart. I don't, I don't know. So these Apache units proved effective in finding the mountain strongholds and the Apache bands and killing or capturing them. So really like taking the, what is this word in my head? Gaining the upper hand. There we go. This general crook was under the pressure, under pressure from Washington to like really nip this whole Geronimo situation in the bud. So He was sent on a second expedition into Mexico, and on January 9th, 1886, he located Geronimo and the band. His Indian scouts attacked the next morning and captured the Apache's herd of horses and their camp equipment. The Apaches were demoralized and agreed to negotiate for surrender. Before the negotiations could be concluded, Mexican troops arrived and mistook the Apache scouts for the enemy Apache. Oh, no. Fucking yikes. So the Mexican government had accused the scouts of taking advantage of their position to conduct theft, robbery, and murder in Mexico. They attacked and killed Captain Crawford, Lieutenant Mouse, the senior officer, and they met with Geronimo, who agreed to meet with General Crook. Geronimo named as the meeting place the Canyon de los Emburos, which is the Canyon of the Funnels, in the Sierra Madre Mountains, which is a little ways from Fort Bowie. During the three days of negotiations, photographer C.S. Fly took about 15 exposures of the Apache on 8 by 10 inches glass negatives, which is where a lot of the photos of Geronimo come from. Yeah. And one of the pictures of Geronimo with two of his sons standing alongside was made at Geronimo's request. And Fly's images are the only existing photographs of Geronimo's surrender, which I thought was cool. That's cool. And where are the pictures now? 
That is a good question. Let's see. Oh my gosh, I forgot to write that down. I know I read it. <laughs> Hold music. I'm so sorry. Google machine. Yes, I'm Googling. I'm sorry. Okay, the only thing I can find is that the Library of Congress in Washington has them. Oh. So I don't think they're actually part of like a museum collection or anything, which actually really surprises me. Library of Congress has a lot of photos. I didn't realize it till yeah. grad school and like every picture that we use, we had to go through the Library of Congress. But yes, so that's who has them. And then, fun fact, among the Indian tribe that was like, or band that was still at war, was a white boy named Jenny, Jimmy McKinn, who was also photographed during this surrender talk. But he had been abducted from his ranch in New Mexico in September of 1885 and then like joined force, forces with them. Oh, wow. Anyway, so let's see. Anyway, so crazy shit happened. So let's talk. Here's the last thing I'm going to go over. I'm going to abbreviate a little bit because this fascinates me. So after Geronimo died, so his death, in February 1909, Geronimo was thrown from his horse while riding home and had to lie in the cold all night until a friend found him and he was like super ill by this, this point. Oh no, that sounds horrific. Which is like all the shit he went through, this is a shit way to die. No, shit. So, he died of pneumonia on February 17th, 1909, as a prisoner of the United States at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. On his deathbed, he confessed to his nephew that he regretted his decision to surrender. His last words were reported to be said to his nephew, I should have never surrendered. I should have fought until I was the last man alive. And he was buried at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, in the Apache Indian Prisoner of War Cemetery. So, here's the last little bit. At some point... His skull was allegedly stolen. Oh, no. Is that so, why the people named that band or that song, Geronimo's Skull? Yes. So, and so bringing it back to the beginning. So, six members of the Yale Secret Society, Skull and Bones, including Prescott Bush, served as Army volunteers at Fort Sill during World War I. In 1986, former San Carlos Apache chairman Ned Anderson received an anonymous letter with a photograph and a copy of a logbook claiming that Skull and Bones held the skull. He met with Skull and Bones officials about the rumor. The group's attorney, Endicott P. Davidson, denied that the group held the skull and said that the 1918 ledger saying otherwise was a hoax. Also, everything I know about Skull and Bones is from Gilmore Girls, and I'm really ashamed right now. Didn't you see that guy? So something Pete Davidson. That was his name. Yes. yes. I just thought of the SNL guy. <laughs> oh, God bless Pete Davidson. I love him. I do too. He's so like awkward and funny. I enjoy him. He's wonderful. I, I could go on and on about how much I love him. So the group offered Anderson a glass case contain, containing what appeared to be the skull of a child, but Anderson refused it. In 2006, Mark Wortman discovered a 1918 letter from Skull and Bones member Winter Mead to F. Truby Davison that claimed the theft. It said the skull of the wor worthy Geronimo the Terrible, exhumed from its tomb at Fort Sill by your club, is now safe inside the tomb and boned together with his well-worn femurs, bit, and saddle horn. So the second tomb refers to the building of Yale's University's Skull and Bone Society, but Meade was not at Fort Sill, and Cameron Uni University history professor David 
H. Miller notes that Geronimo's grave was unmarked at the time. So the revelation led Harlan Geronimo of Mescalero, New Mexico, to write to President George W. Bush, who's the grandson of Prescott Bush, who was part of the Skull and Bone Society, Uh um, requesting his help in returning the remains. And he said, according to our traditions, the remains of this sort, especially in this state, when the grave was desecrated, need to be reburied with the proper, proper rituals to return the dignity and let his spirits rest in peace. In 2009, Ramsey Clark filed a lawsuit on behalf of people claiming descent from Geronimo against several parties, including Robert Gates and Skull and Bones, asking for the return of Geronimo's bones. An article in the New York Times states that Clark acknowledged he had no hard proof that the story was true. Investigators, including Bush family biographer Kitty Kelly, who's super famous, by the way, and the pseudonymous Cecil Adams, there we go, say the story is untrue. A military spokesman from Fort Sill told Adams there is no evidence to indicate the bones are anywhere but in the gravesite. Jeff Hauser, chairman of the Fort Sill Apache tribe of Oklahoma, calls the story a hoax. In 1928, the armor, army covered Geronimo's grave with concrete and provided a stone monument, making any possible ex- examination of remains difficult. So, like, Geronimo's skull may or may not be in the ground, and the world may never know. So, yeah, but that's the weird, morbid, terrifying historical story of Geronimo. Man, that's crazy. Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a whole lot. And I promise my third story is not that long. Man, that's that's wild. I didn't know a lot of that. That's really cool. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I love like I love hearing about the real history of things that are so fixed in our pop culture because everybody knows who Geronimo is by the word, but most people don't know who the man was. So that's really cool. Yeah. All right. Well, for my funny. Excellent. Bring it on. We're getting sexual. <laughs> She's doing like a. Sorry, in my head, her. I'm like sexual healing. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to talk about Benjamin Give No Fucks Franklin. What? Uh, what? Benjamin Franklin, he was born on January 17th, 1706, and died on April 17th, 1790, was a founding father. A polymath, inventor, scientist, printer, politician, Freemason, and a diplomat. He helped draft the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution, and he negotiated the 1783 Treaty of Paris that ended the Revolutionary War. So, he's a big fucking deal. His scientific pursuits included investigations into electricity, mathematics, and map making. A writer known for his wit and wisdom, Franklin also published the Poor Richard's Almanac, invented bifocal glasses, and organized the first successful America lending library. Like a boss. But he also gave no fucks. So we're going to talk about my evidence that he gave no fucks. I love Benjamin Franklin so much for the zero fucks he gave. Getting a drink first. Okay, exhibit A. He was a lawbreaker slash weirdo. When an excavation was done on Franklin's London home in 1998, the remains of 10 dead bodies were found. While a few conspiracy theorists claim that he was a mass murderer, because that's obviously the first conclusion you jump to. And then the second one is that he was obviously a satanic cult leader. But the truth is a little less, you know, creepy and 
More vanilla. So while in London, Ben had a roommate who was a medical student named William Hewson. Hewson probably purchased dead bodies on the black market and then performed surgeries in a school that he ran in the back of his house. While Franklin was almost certainly aware that these were illegal discretions, it's doubtful that he participated, but he also didn't give any fucks. Since the doctor had bought the bodies from grave robbers and grave robbing was obviously illegal, he probably buried them in the yard to avoid detection. Nice. Yeah. So he obviously was just like, I don't know what the fuck you're doing. Keep me out of it. Just buried in the backyard. Yes. Fuck the police. Fuck the police. Exhibit B. He liked to get it. Hell yeah, he did. His salacious activities are just famous. All right. So. Franklin's common-law marriage to Deborah Reed, which, fun fact, is my mom's maiden name, so I'm going to obviously believe that we're related now. Of course. Was likely built on more convenience than love. He didn't seem especially attracted to her, and Waz even compared her body to a beer mug, so you're definitely, definitely related. (laughs) (laughs) Some historians believe that he married her just so he had someone to take out his sexual energies on. Yikes. He cheated on her openly throughout their 44-year marriage, 18 years of which they spent apart. Deborah suffered a stroke while her husband was overseas. He didn't return to Philadelphia to see her, and she died alone in 1774. That's a dick move. That is such a dick move. I'd be so angry. <sighs> Some historians like Thomas A. Foster, author of Sex and the Founding Fathers, The American Quest for a Relatable Past, thinks Franklin may have fathered 15 illegitimate children in his life. Oh my god, that's a lot of... Oh my god, okay. Like I said, old Ben liked to get it. One of Franklin's illegitimate children is well accounted for. In 1731, a year into his marriage to Deborah Reed, he had a son with one of his mistresses, some historians believe that the mother of his child was a woman named Barbara, a maid in their household. <laughs> I just face. smacked myself in the face. Just ignore me. <laughs> there was a bug attacking me. Oh, man. So Barbara, Barbara housemaid. Deborah accepted the child. They named it William Franklin. And she raised him as her stepson. So not only is she like a beer mugged, just somebody he doesn't find attractive. Now she's raising his illegitimate children. Man. Anyway, <laughs> dude grew up to be a political figure in his own right. He became the governor of New Jersey. Deborah and Franklin also had two children on their own. One is a son that passed away at five due to smallpox. And then they had a daughter named Sally who lived into her 60s, which is pretty impressive for this time period. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's like actually really old for that time period. Yeah. Next, in 1745, Franklin wrote an essay in response to a young man who asked him how to tame his sexual appetite. (sighs) The essay was titled, Advice to Young Men on the Choices of a Mistress, and in it, he argued that older women make the best companions. Fuck yeah, older women! Yeah, we do. I mean, they do. (laughs) We're ancient in this time. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. I was... 30 when I got married. You were close to 30, so yeah, yeah. We, would been, we would have been older. <laughs> and he said, quote, in all your amours, you should prefer an old woman to a young one. The pleasures of corporal enjoyment with an old woman 
is at least equal and frequently superior. Every knack being by practice capable of improvement, according to Franklin. Older women are so grateful. Fuck <sighs> <Talk> that guy. <laughs> <sighs> so in today's term, he's just like older women, you know, have had practice, but they're just grateful to get some at this point because they're old. And who wants an old person? What? Fuck off, dude. <sighs> But he changed his tune when he got older, because that's what dudes do. He decided that he wanted the younger ladies now. Of course. <laughs> it's just like then every- he bought a motorcycle. <laughs> like every rich white man ever. Like, I could, I could still get it with a 20-year-old. No, no, you can't. Your oh money God. can. Your money can. He had a reputation for having a strong libido, obviously, even as he grew old. In 1754, when Franklin was 48, he met 23-year-old Catherine Ray. He tried to make a move on her, but she refused. However, the two kept up in correspondence, and while he attempted to entice her into a relationship for a while, it didn't happen. So, he was thinking half his age. Good God. In another incident in London in 1767, where his friend Charles Wilson Peale, who is a really famous artist, like any major art museum ever, is going to have a Peale, including the one I'm trying to get a job at. So, you know, maybe I can do my presentation on it. Do it. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Benjamin Franklin's sex talk in there. I'll definitely get a job. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, so he went to Franklin's apartment. He opened the door and saw the... the Zen. He saw the then 61-year-old Franklin kissing and fondling a young girl who was sitting on his lap. There was even a little quip about Franklin's taste for young women when he aged. Franklin, though, plagued with fumbling age, needs nothing to excite him, but is ready to engage when younger arms are there to invite him. Gross. Imagine being so sex-crazed that people are writing, like, poems about it. <laughs> and say, like, you are so sex-crazed that, like, People are literally rhyming about it. It's gross. <laughs> uh, Franklin went to London in 1724 with his friend, a poet named James Ralph. The two soon had a falling out. Franklin made a sexual advance on Ralph's mistress. Furious, oh. Ralph ended the friendship and refused to pay Franklin the 27 pounds he owed him. <laughs> Damn, that's like serious. <laughs> this is all so ridiculous. So he was. Even trying to charm the ladies when he was, like, super old. He arrived in Paris in 1776, but he was 70 at this point. The United States had just become a nation, and he had been sent there to serve as a commissioner to France. While he was there, even though he's 70 fucking years old, he still charmed plenty of women at one ceremony. He was honored by 300 French women who honored him by placing a crown of laurels on his head and kissing both his cheeks. Gross. I have a picture of that. That's going to go on Facebook. But all these paintings of Franklin or him in Fran- France with just women swarming him. I don't understand. He was not an attractive man. Like any he portrait ever. You know, like look at your. I'm poor. I don't have a $100 bill. Oh, I do have a $100 bill on me. But anyway. What? <laughs> they gave me a $100 bill to go buy clothes for the interview. <laughs> nice. Anyway, even the Benjamins. He doesn't look that attractive, but I digress. His sex drive likely didn't wane either. A young composer and musician and Louise de Hardencourt, Brian de Joy, 
That is a long ass name. Yikes. Caught his eye and he tried to seduce her with no luck. She affectionately referred to him as Cher Papa. <laughs> uh, oh, yikes. You didn't just get friend zoned. You got dad zoned. <laughs> or grandpa. I don't know. Oh, he then fell for and courted a rich noble widow named Madame Helvetis. She had an estate in a French court or countryside where Franklin got very comfortable in the company of her and her guests. He even proposed marriage to her, but she turned him down every time. <laughs> of course. In 1757, he moved into an apartment in London building owned by a widow named Margaret Stevenson. Margaret also lived with an 18-year-old daughter named Polly. Some historians think that Margaret and Franklin had an affair for 15 years while he lived under this roof. Others think Franklin tried to spark up a romance with Polly as well. He was reportedly fond of Polly, and he kept up a long correspondence with her. In his final years, he even had the widowed Polly move to Philadelphia to be by his side until his death in 1790. Gross. Hell, right? Mom and daughter? Dude. I'm pretty sure. So when I was in um, undergrad, we had to read Benjamin Franklin's journals, mm-hmm. which was really fascinating. And I think that uh, the mom was the one that Benjamin Franklin's wife wrote to him and was like, dude, come home. And he was like, only if I can bring my woman with me and we can all live together. And she was like, are you fucking kidding me? You're not bringing her. And so he was like, I guess I'm not coming home then. And then she died. He was not only like a notorious man whore. He was just like, no, like so open about it. Yeah. Like there's no historical document where he even tries to hide it. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, he also was very, op- it was very well known that he frequented red light districts. <laughs> of course. Franklin publicly promoted a life of upstanding morality and virtues, which honestly is what people think of initially as our founding fathers or these pious people, blah, blah, blah. But real talk people, they were not Christians. Most of them were deists. So I'm not going to get on that soapbox right now. I digress. In his autobiography, he described 13 virtues every decent man should live by, noting that men should rarely use venery, but for health or for offspring, offspring, never to dullness, weakness, or the entry of your own or another's peace or reputation. Privately, he allegedly did no such thing, obviously. When Franklin first moved to London in 1724, he was a regular at all the city parlors, a.k.a. Red Light District. This was a habit that he kept on his whole life. At night, he would always be seen at a pub in the company of women. There's a quote. In his morning litany, he could pray to be kept from lavishness, but when night came, the lust just came with it. And then he also added, he went to the women hungrily, secretly, and briefly. <laughs> Which oh, I briefly. Briefly, I think that is like such a burn that's just slipped in there. <laughs> Shit. Damn. They came for you. They snatched that powdered wig. <laughs> I don't think he actually wore a powdered wig. I just wanted to say that. Yeah. Exhibit C. He was in a sex cult. <laughs> like you do. Uh, I added a question mark because there's still some like, you know, there's some naysayers. So like it was in a sex cult, but it was totally a sex cult. Okay. While Franklin was in London from 1757 to 1775, some historians believe that he was a member of the Metamimham Monks, also known as the Hellfire Club. Oh. This, 
This was a group of libertine men who were known for their perverse sexual proclivities and the rejection of religious constraints. Twice a year, a meeting of the members would be held. Reports vary as to when these take place, but generally they're believed to be either March, June, August, or early October. Invitations were sent by the prior, and costumes were required to be worn by the attendees. These meetings were recorded in 1779 in a book called Nocturnal Revels. Wow. (laughs) It could not be more blatant unless it was called like Nocturnal Emissions. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. So every member that attended was allowed to eat well and enjoy the company of, quote, cheerful ladies of lively dispositions. So to uh, put it in today's terms, booze and orgies. (laughs) Friday night at my house. I added this just because the name of the guy. So one famous account details a practical joke played by Lord Sandwich. What? The story goes that the night before one gathering, a live baboon was brought into the club and placed in a room that Lord Sandwich was staying in. When the members retired to their cells after dinner, they were expected to hear or see a reaction from Lord Sandwich. But they didn't get one because he reportedly dressed the baboon up in ceremonial costumes and then put it in a trunk and then... When they went outside and everybody was around, he let the baboon out of the trunk and it jumped on his shoulders. I, that's, a, that's the most wild story ever. <laughs> okay, so here's where my mind went because I don't have normal neural pathways, apparently. I, I immediately thought I want to see like a children's illustrated picture book <laughs> called like Sandwich and the Monkey or Sandwich and the Baboon. Yes! And... Like, I know everybody's singing sandwich. He actually was the inventor of the sandwich because he was a notorious gambler. Yes. What the fuck is happening out there? Are you being attacked? Zombie apocalypse started? It's happening. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, I'm talking back. Okay. So, anyway, he was a notorious gambler and he wanted a food source that he could hold and eat. And not have to get up and stop gambling. So they created the sandwich. I love it. What? Anyway, back to Benjamin. His membership cannot be confirmed or denied because obviously it's a secret sex cult. But historians point out that he had close friendships with almost everybody that was notoriously members, including its founder, Francis Dashwood, which is probably the most British name ever. Sir Dashwood. Sir Dashwood. Sir Dashwood. Yeah, I've heard all kinds of things about how they went to these, like, dank caves and you'd have to be in a boat and, like, go in there with your little cloaks and stuff. And then there'd be, like, wild drinking orgy parties. I first heard of Hellfire Club on Ghost Adventures. (laughs) But, yeah, there's some, like, buzzkills that are, like, there's no proof that there was actually, like, sex involved. And I'm, like... Think about who was there. There was sex involved. They were all notorious, like, slanderers. Yes. I'm just going to speculate wildly and say it was a giant orgy. (laughs) I'm okay with this. I'm on board. Yeah, Benjamin was quite the character. He not only did a lot of wild stuff for, like, that time period, especially, you know, with the groups that he hung out with, there was this, like, outside 
uh, facade of being like pious and yep. you know you're a wealthy white man at this time you're supposed to have like a rule of conduct but he just broke every rule and I was just like fuck it <laughs> let's get down it's the kind of politician I would be let me bring my 30 mistresses to dinner wife right. yeah <laughs> why can't I bring her to live with us I would cut my husband if he brought a mistress home Oh, yeah. One of those bodies in the yard would be his. <laughs> it's so true. Like, Tell death, bitch. <laughs> this, Just this, me. <laughs> this is going to be used in a future trial as evidence, but that's fine. <laughs> and they'll be the real Exhibit A. Yes. Exhibit A. Both of them plotting their husband's death if they ever cheated. Oops. Mm. You know, it happens. <laughs> <laughs> Shit happens. Yeah, I always think it's funny. And then also you have, like, Alexander Hamilton... Who also had a very, like, public affair. And then they accused him of using public funds to, you know, pay off his mistress. And then, so, he not only was like, I didn't do that. He published all their love letters to be like, I didn't use federal funds. Here's the proof. But he completely just fucked up his relationship with his wife. Because he was just like, he thought it was more important to show that he was not using government money than his own marriage. It's wild because, you know, that's actually really common, though. And I used to do uh, transcription work on the side for the bankruptcy courts. And the amount of men who would use like business funds for their like mistresses or like to buy their wives cars was like so common. Yeah. And I think it was like Aaron Burr because he didn't like him. He was the first one to be like, oh, you're using federal funds for, you know, extortion. And he was like, fuck, no, I'm not. I'm going to publish everything. Yep. And then it kind of worked out for him because he went down kind of as a martyr. And uh, Aaron Burr was ruined after that. But, man, there's a lot of, like, naughty things in early colonial history, early America. Dirty, dirty birds. So that was that on Benjamin Franklin. I could have gone. There's so many lists of all the crazy stuff he did. I just tried to get it down to, like, three points. But yes, he was wild. I do like the Founding Fathers. I think... Like, Thomas Jefferson had his own Bible that he cut out all the miraculous events. And I'm I'm a fan of that Bible. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Kind of tie into our last ep- episode, but... Yeah. I had a copy and somebody stole it, which I feel like... Why would you steal my Bible? It had to have been somebody I lived with at some point, but it just disappeared. <laughs> like, yeah, that is oddly specific to be stolen. <laughs> My sister bought it for me. It's the Thomas Jefferson Bible. And he took out everything that's miraculous so that it would all be factual, like science-based. And it just disappeared in one of my moves. Like, Oh, man, I'm going to have to find a copy of that. It's really cool. I really enjoy it. Well, speaking of Bibles, I have a short story, short piece on something that may have originated in the Bible. What? In the United States? Kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but no. Okay, Okay. (laughs) so I'm going to talk just a little bit about bundling or tarrying, which is the traditional practice of wrapping two people in a bed together, usually as a part of courting behavior. Huh. So, okay. I don't think I would enjoy that. (laughs) (sighs) Real talk. I, for even for like the simple fact 
that I am like a starfish when I sleep. You can't <laughs> see all of me, but I am like starfishing my legs and arms out. I am all over. Like we have a king size bed and half the time I'm like draped over Terry, like poor, poor man. <laughs> so just being put in a sack, I don't like it. Nope. So uh, this tradition is thought to have originated either in the Neverland, Neverland, what the fuck? <laughs> The Netherlands or in the British Isles and later became common in colonial United States, especially in Pennsylvania Dutch country. Some Nebraska Amish may still practice it. And when used for courtship, the aim is to allow intimacy without sexual intercourse. So the origin of it, it's possibly the precedent was set for bundling in the biblical story of Ruth and Boaz, in which Ruth, a widow, and Boaz a wealthy landowner, spend a night together in a grain storage room. Tradition says they did not touch and the pair later got married. So this fascinates me. There's several ways to do it. There's bundling where they literally, like, you've got a sack and, like, say I were courting a man. It was scandalous to bundle with more than one person. So, like... If I had been with a man, been dating a man basically or courting him, and we were like imminent to getting engaged, our families would bundle us where they put us in these sacks and then sew them closed. So just our heads are sticking out (laughs) and you sleep side by side in the bed for the night. Are you like back to back, front to front, or like side to side? However, but you cannot like intimately do anything because you're literally sewed into a sack all um, i think is if you're like sewed face to face and you're just breathing on each other just be like, right you. like stop breathing <laughs> on me but yes it, but like you're in separate sacks like not even the same sack oh i thought they'd be in the same sack well there there's either you're in your own separate sacks or you're in one sack that has a seam down the middle of it so you can't touch. Good God. Like, if you're bundled like a baby, you can't move. How do they think being in the same sack's going to do anything? <laughs> exactly. So then there's another way that they do it. It's uh, called a bed board where they take, like, like a one-foot-wide board or shorter, like six inches to a foot wide, that's the length of the bed, and you sleep in the same bed, but the board goes between you. <laughs> it's so, it's weird to I me. I have heard of that. That's insane. Oh it fascinates God. me. So, yeah, so, like, it was scandalous. So, if you were about to get engaged with someone, your family would let you do this bundling or this tearing. But if that didn't work out, and then you ended up, like, later on being with someone else and being bundled, like, you were kind of considered a bit of a hoe. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so use it's, a hole. Use ah! a hole. Bundling with other people. I'm just gonna start calling like sleeping bundling. I don't know. So traditionally this was done with adolescence with a boy staying at the residence of the girl. They were given separate blankets by the girl's parents and expected to talk to one another throughout the night. So this was like pillow talk and nothing else happened type situation. So, yeah, and so they they were bundled or used a bundling board or a um, bed board to discourage sexual conduct. 
Okay, so in colonial United States, Jonathan Edwards and other preachers condemned bundling. It was very risque. Yet the practice continued into the period of the early republic when, and this is fascinating to me, so at inns and stuff, if beds were scarce, travelers were permitted to bundle with locals. So, like, if they, uh, if the inn was full, you could pay to be bundled into someone else's bed, like, at a local house. Or, if you went to an inn, you could pay for half of a bed and be bundled, and then someone else could pay for the other half of the bed and be bundled next to you. Wait, so if you're paying for it, are these strangers? Yes. So you just want the intimacy. Like, so you're this paying for this wasn't about intimacy so much as like sharing a bed with a stranger, but like you're both bundled up so neither can like mess with the other person's stuff kind of thing. Oh, okay. Yes. So this allowed, this basically was like a way that people at hotels and inns made extra money because they only rented out half a bed. And oh. <laughs> yes, so the it says some hotels rented rooms for the night shared by many occupants and sharing a bed entailed an additional fee. Making those money moves. <laughs> yes, like big, that's like big dick energy for money making. Uh, so it is possible that as late as the mid 19th century, bundling was still practiced in New York State and perhaps in New England, though its popularity was waning. The court case of Graham versus Smith for example, initially argued before Judge Edmonds in the Orange Circuit Court of New York concerned the seduction of a 19-year-old woman. Testimony in the case established that bundling was a common practice in certain rural social circles at the time. By the 20th century, bundling seems to have disappeared almost everywhere, except for the more conservative Old Order Amish affiliations, where it is still in use in the 21st century regardless of the location. So... The writer, Washington Irving, in Chapter 7 of Knickerbocker's History of New York, as well <laughs> as his like other this, works. Like right? Knickerbocker. <laughs> Knickerbocker. I had, to, I had to include it. He refers to bundling as a Yankee practice. He says, this amazing increase may, indeed, by, be partly ascribed to a singular custom prevalent among them, commonly known by the name of bundling, a superstitious rite observed by the young people of both sexes with which they usually terminated these festivities and which was kept up with religious strictness by the more bigoted part of the community. It was weird to me that it was just like, yeah, it's totally fine. Y'all sleep in the same bed. But apparently this started because in a lot of the colonies during the winter, gentlemen callers would come to the, ho- the girl's house and then it would be too cold to travel back. So they would let them stay the night there and were like, I guess you can go ahead and sleep in her bed since y'all are courting, but y'all can't touch each other. So we're going to sew you into a sack. So it's really fascinating to me. So I always like talking about how it's depicted in media and all of that and pop culture because it makes it easier to kind of correlate. So in the media, Heath Ledger's character in The Patriot is bundled when he spends an overnight visit at his girlfriend's house. That uh, the girl he's courting. And I I remember that vividly, them like sewing him into the sack. This happens in Deadwood when someone mentions removing a bundling board from their bed in season two, episode two. In the series Salem, which is a really good series, by the way, season one, episode seven, our own private America. There are some teens that are seen um, bundling and the girl actually breaks the sack 
shocking. It's a very scandalous series. (laughs) And then in A Discovery of Witches, which is a more recent show uh they discuss bundling in that so yeah it's just it's like really fascinating to me like i I chose it for weird because it's a custom that i'm not used to but you're accustomed i'm not accustomed to this custom man that was really really cool i could i was gonna ask you if anybody ever tries to like explode out of it well and when i was researching this there was also mention of how like if you had a premature birth, you like were considered to have like had sex before marriage. So that was part of why they bundled to like make sure that you didn't get pregnant. But I have a feeling that there were a lot of like premature babies that were actually the result of accidental unbundlings. Yeah. But yeah. So yeah, that's everything. So that was episode 12. Oh, good times. Well, this week we have another Patreon shout out. We are so excited to welcome Deanne Walker into our Patreon family. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much. You are a majestic, wonderful woman and you're beautiful and we love you. Yay. Love you so much. Thank you. So excited. And if you'd like to join Patreon and we have a lot of cool content, when I say we have extra content, we have a shit ton of extra content. We have bloopers, we have deleted scenes, extended scenes. You get early access to all of the podcasts, which means whenever I get done editing, we put it up. Yep. <laughs> which, like today, I put up a podcast like two days before it comes out. So just you get a lot of stuff early. You get book lists and bucket lists and all kinds of good stuff. So you should go to www.patreon.com slash historical AF pod and look at the tiers. Yes. And then, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we have cool merch. Stuff for your dog, stuff for your coffee, stuff for your husband, stuff for yourself. And, and babies. We got and baby babies stuff too. <laughs> I always forget that. Fanny packs. I think we had cheek. Yeah, we had like a a bib. This is big mood. Yes, <laughs> every Emotional baby needs that. Margarita, not for your baby, just for yourself. <laughs> yeah, we got lots of alien merch now because you know how we feel about aliens. And yes. uh, although earlier you said I need Jesus in a nap, and I feel like that needs to be a shirt, so it's probably going to happen. <laughs> also accurate, but yes, we have so much cool stuff, and to look at that, you go to shop dot spreadshirt dot com slash historical af pod yes and we're still needing forever needing your personal story so if you have a cool legend of your hometown a history your family history if you've been to a cool historic place any kind of personal story you want us to read on the podcast send it to historical af pod at gmail.com and we will read it on our next historical af extra af episode Woo. Yes, it's going to be awesome. We just yeah. did July's Extra AF, and it was so fun. Uh, so then, if you want to find us on social media, which you probably already have, but if not, uh, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, we are at Historical AF Pod. Yes, and please still, if you haven't already, review us on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, Facebook. The more you guys review, the more visible we are going to be. And uh, also tell your friends, your family, uh, scream it to a stranger on the street to listen to us. (laughs) Yes, but not in a way that you get arrested. 
but like yeah yeah don't get too, it. don't be too aggressive but just enough where people are like intrigued yes yeah. i love it yeah and also if you can think of a name for all the listeners we will give you something <laughs> yes yes i i'm like really struggling with that well i know like the girl the gals from uh wine and crime they call themselves the wine coven and then oh. you have the and that's why we drink are the boozers and the shakers so if you think of a cool name for you guys and if you'd like your own website facebook group to chat amongst yourselves without the public seeing we could yeah. uh, do that too yes yes i've been thinking about that i just haven't pulled the trigger on it yet because i need a good nickname yeah we need a good name so let's do that do it right now one two three go did you do it? Did you do it? <laughs> Welcome back. Did you do it? Okay. <laughs> All right, guys. Have a great week, and we will uh, be uh, music to your ears next week. <laughs> oh, yes. So, yeah. yeah. The Americans. light, the ear holes. <laughs> yes. So, I hope the Americans had a great Independence Day, and we will see you next week. And you non-Americans, I hope you enjoy all the things on Facebook, YouTube, and the internet of people blowing themselves up on. Yes. (laughs) All the fingers lost. (laughs) All right, bye, guys. Love you. Bye. Love you.